I'm going to read Genesis 12. We're working through the, the book of Genesis over these weeks. We will get to the, the story of Joseph probably in Lent. Um, there is a workbook for Joseph. It's actually aimed more at teenagers, but it, it's good just to stop and think about it, that we, which goes with this Bible. So if you pick up one of the Bibles at the end, um, please do take one of these. As I say, I've got 50 of them. I love none left at the end of it, and we can get, I can order more. So if we run out, don't worry about it. So please do take one of these books of Genesis as you leave today. Um, the only, only requirement is that you try to read it. That's it. I'm going to read from it this morning. It's actually, it's the New International Reader's Version. So it's going to be almost the same as the words on the screen, but probably not quite, because it's designed just to be read, um, like a story. Genesis chapter 12, let's hear the word of God. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's family, go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you. I will put a curse on anyone who puts a curse on you. All nations will be blessed because of you. So Abram went, just as the Lord had told him. Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife, Sarah, and his nephew, Lot. They took all the people and possessions they'd acquired in Haran. They started out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abraham traveled through the land. He went as far as the large tree of Moreh at Sheshem. At that time, the Canaanites were living in the land. The Lord appeared to Abraham at Sheshem and said, I will give this land to your family who comes after you. So Abram built an altar there to honor the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, Abraham went on towards the hills east of Bethel. He set up his tent there. Bethel was to the west and A to the east. Abram built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram left and continued south towards the Negev Desert. At that time, there was not enough food in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while. As he was about to enter Egypt, he spoke to his wife Sarah and said, I know what a beautiful woman you are, Charmer. The people of Egypt will see you and say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Tell them you're my sister. Then I'll be treated well and my life will be spared because of you. Abram arrived in Egypt. The Egyptians saw that Sarah was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they told Pharaoh how beautiful she was. So she was taken into his palace. Pharaoh treated Abram well because of her. So Abram gained more sheep and cattle and male and female donkeys. He also gained more male and female servants and some camels. But the Lord 
sent terrible diseases on Pharaoh and everyone in his palace. The Lord did it because of Abram's wife, Sarah. So Pharaoh sent for Abram. Why have you done this to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she was your sister? That's why I took her to be my wife. Uh, now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders to his men about Abram. They sent him on his way so that he left with his wife and everything that he had. Amen. And thanks be to God for his word. I can imagine a conversation in here. Abraham, where are you going? Oh, I'm packing, I'm moving. Abraham, are you moving into one of those retirement complexes? Uh, no, I'm, 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 I'm moving to a new country. Oh, Abram, where are you going? Oh, I, I don't know yet. Um, Abram, when you get there, what are you going to do? Oh, I'm going to have a massive big family and start a whole new nation. Abram, you're 75 and you've got no kids. It's madness, isn't it, when you think about it? Utter madness. This senile old man, why is he playing at? He's going to walk from here to the promised land, which is about 500 miles, and then actually from there he's going to walk down to Egypt, which is about 500 more. That looks like a cue for a song, doesn't it? and gets a new job at 75. Mind you, the way pensions are going, probably all of us. Well, there's a, a simple lesson here, maybe. It's not the big one, but God doesn't really have age discrimination at his heart, does he? You know, some folks say in churches sometimes, well, I've reached a certain age, I should start stepping down from things. You know this, God has no retirement plan in the kingdom of heaven. There's the only different jobs to do as you move through life. You may have to give up one thing, but there'll be something else. There's always something to do. There's never a stage where you sit back and say, I've done my bit. But that's not really what I want to think about today. Because if we think that Abram's plan must have appeared mad to his neighbors, what about God's plan? Remember this story, and this is important to remember as we go through Genesis, that this story is a chapter in a book, and the book is part of a library. And it's always worth, when you read a bit of the Bible, stepping back and saying, how does this fit in? What does this teach us? Where is it coming from? The beginning of this book started with the wonderful world that God made out of nothing. He made it all, the plants, the animals, the trees, the rivers, and he looked at every part of it, and he said, it is good. It started with a God infinitely creative, making beauty and making wonder all around him. And then the pinnacle of that creation, he made men and women and put them into the place. And he said to them, I want you to do a little of what I have been doing. I have created all of this, so you go and procreate. I have made all of this, so you make it flourish. And I will bless you. And you will be fruitful and you will multiply. And then we know the story, don't we? 
that these people made to echo some of that creative beauty of God actually turned from him. Sin entered the world and people began to rebel and it all started to go wrong. We've only got to chapter 3. And you know, here is the amazing thing. The next 47 chapters of Genesis are about what God did next. They're about how God took a world that had rebelled against him, and that's the world we find ourselves in today, and we're circling into alienation and loneliness and greed and violence and misery. And God began to do something to win back this beautiful world. In fact, that's not just the story of the next 47 chapters of Genesis. It's the story of every part of Scripture right down till we get to the last chapter of the book of Revelation where we are shown a vision of God perfecting the world, rescuing it, and creating a new heaven and a new earth. God's mighty plan. The God who made everything out of nothing comes and begins a plan to rescue it. And he starts with a 75-year-old man with a 65-year-old wife who has no children. And says to them, I am going to make from you a nation, and I am going to bless this nation, and through this nation, I am going to bless the whole of humanity. Now, they've got a clue what that means. We know what it means, that through that nation, the Messiah would come that would reverse the curse of sin and would open up this new creation and resurrection. But what a start. What is God playing at as he picks Abraham? Abraham, and it, it's, it's symbolized in his, all he's got to come after him is this nephew called Lot. And we'll find out more about Lot. He's not in Abraham's direct line of descent, but he's there. He's got a wife who's a bit salty. Oh, sorry. Um, bad puns. Got to keep you awake. But what a plan. What a plan. But God is always doing that. He's taking the least and the most insignificant, and by his amazing power and his grace, he is using them. Like he began at the beginning of creation, taking nothing and making everything, he's doing it again. So again, don't let age ever put you off. I, I had a woman in my last congregation, she was 93, and she decided to go to China. So she went to China, and she went around all the places that you go in China. I've never been to China. Some of you might have been. And she went and saw the, the, the terracotta warriors and the, the forbidden city and all the rest of it. She came back and um, with all, the, all the, the pictures. I think she called them slides, which is, dates it a little bit. But she went around the guild and all the other bits, showing her pictures. And somebody eventually said to her, she said, what are you doing going to China at 93? That's crazy. She turned around to them and said, well, what age do you think I should have gone at? Is not old enough? What an attitude. But an attitude that actually she could do it. But this is about what God can do with what seems to be dead and hopeless and barren. And, it, and again, that's the whole story of Genesis. We looked at it last week in, in, in the story of Noah. That, that, that here was God coming to save a whole planet and he chose 
a man who ended up being a bit of a drunk. And he said to that man, not only am I going to save you, but I'm going to involve you in my plan. My plan to save the whole of creation. You're going to do that by putting animals in a boat. But that whole idea of God not just coming and saying, I want to rescue you, but saying, I want to rescue the whole of creation, but I want to involve you in this work that I am about. Abraham is quite an important figure. That's putting it mildly in terms of the Bible story. Paul, writing in the book of Romans chapter 4, will call Abraham the father of all who believe. He's the one we look to because he's not only is he the father of the Jewish race, through that Jewish race comes this blessing that is the beginning of the whole of the Christian community that is the blessing to the world. So we will look to Abraham. But the strange thing is, as we look at the Abraham stories, I hope that we'll find this, it's not really a story about Abraham. It's a story about God. It's not that God wants us to know all about Abraham, so we'll all go out from here thinking, I can be like Abraham too, or or Abraham's brilliant, and I, I really admire Abraham. But rather, as we look at the story of Abraham and all Abraham's feelings, that we'll understand a bit more of the God who is saying to us, I have a plan to redeem and rescue this whole world in Jesus Christ. And here is the amazing thing. I don't care whether you're 2, 22, 75, or 93. I don't care what resources you bring to the table or whether you feel completely barren. I am calling you. Not because of what you can offer, but because what I, in my grace, have for you. In this story, God speaks first, and he says, well, really one word, and it's not a word of a whole word of thou shalt not, or thou shalt, it's just one word, go. Go. Leave your country, leave your people, leave your father's household, leave everything that you thought gives you security, because that's what those things were all about. Leave all of that behind you and go. But before we're told whether Abraham went, or what Abraham thought of that, we're told that God gave a promise. Not about what Abraham would do, but what God would do. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will give you a great name. All nations will be blessed through you. Trust in me, Abraham. I have got this amazing plan, and I just want you to come. And that's why Paul called him the father, sorry, yeah, Paul called him the father of all that believe, because He had that call just to go and to trust. The point that Paul is making in Romans is that the promise is primary. The first thing is God coming and saying, this is what I am promising you. And all I'm asking you to do is to trust me. I will catch you up in my plan. I will save you from everything that seems pathetic to you. And I will use you to bless and redeem this whole world that I have made. And for us, well, we know so much more than Abraham knew. We know God's plan, much of it, in Jesus Christ. And we have that promise for us. I who began a good work in you, says Paul, will carry it on to completion on the day of Christ Jesus, rather he that began a good work and you will carry it on to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. You are mine, says Jesus, 
and I will never let you go. He that has come to me, I will never let him go. I will raise him up on the last day. Those amazing works of promises that are given to us with this vision from Revelation of a world perfected, of an ecology healed, of justice and peace, of plenty for all in our world today and how much we need that as we look around. Abraham brought nothing. No kids, nothing at all. And so what Abraham teaches us is, is a bit about humility. Sometimes when we come to church, we, think we, we begin to think we are better than other people because at least we know and we responded and we believed and we did all the righteous things. And the story of Abraham says, no, this was all about God. It was all about God's promise. It was all about God choosing you. Nothing else mattered. You didn't come along and God says, well, try really hard to study this or believe this or take on all of this. God simply said, trust me, because I am faithful, and that's all that matters. You know, I was going to say I taught my children to swim. I guess we started teaching them, and then we got them some lessons. But do you know that bit where you have a, a young child in, in a swimming pool? And you can tell them all you like that um, if they do the right strokes, they'll float, and they won't sink. You can tell them the theory of it. You can show them that other people are swimming. So human beings can actually do this. But at the end of the day, as you hold that child, it, it comes down to them actually taking their feet off the ground of the swimming pool and trusting themselves to the water and finding it that will hold them. And that is ultimately what Christian faith is, isn't it? It's casting ourselves and saying, I believe your promise. I don't understand it all. I haven't grasped it all. I haven't read all the theology books. It doesn't matter. The starting point is I heard your word that said go, and I said yes. Difficult it is, as much as I will fail, I will trust you. And that's where it will begin. And yet, it always means leaving things behind. Now, for Abraham, it meant leaving a, a whole land behind. For the disciples, it meant leaving their nets behind. But for all of us, it's a bit like that swimming pool. It's actually taking your feet off the ground. It's actually being willing to say, I I'm not going to trust the things that common sense and the world around me tells me to trust, but I'm going to trust myself to you. And the trouble is, for us, the more that we have, the more affluence we have, the harder that that is. I, I was reading a book just this week that was pointing out that faith has declined as people have got wealthier. Faith has declined as people have got wealthier because why? We trusted in and we won't let go. That's why Jesus said it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's not that the riches are themselves evil, but it's all that security that we have in our society around us. That means we trust in these things. And we find it very difficult to say, I'm going to trust in God. What did all this mean for Abraham? Well, he didn't know anything. He knew less than we did. He didn't have the Bible. He didn't even have anything beyond the first 12 chapters of Genesis, never mind the whole rest of the book. He didn't know where it was all headed. And yet, he trusted God. Not a set of commandments, 
the Ten Commandments wouldn't be there for another 400 years, four or 500 years. But Abraham just had to trust in God himself and the promise that God gave him. And it doesn't start very well, actually. We're told that Abraham walks 500 miles. And when he gets there, God says, this is the land I'm giving you. And so Abraham sort of travels around the land and he travels to, to Morah, which is on the border. And then he travels to Bethel, which is sort of near where Jerusalem will end up being. And then he travels down Negrev. And he, he's almost like at that point, it's like a dog marking out his territory. And he's building little altars and he's saying, this is going to be my land. But we're immediately told of the problems. The first problem is there's a bunch of Canaanites living there. And you might think, well, gosh, you've given me this land and there's all these issues. How, how, how are we going to sort that? And God says, well, we'll sort that. It'll actually be another 500 years before that's sorted with Joshua. And so the promise that Abraham was given, the first thing he had to understand was the land wasn't going to be his right away. In fact, when Abraham died, he didn't even own a burial plot for his wife. He had nothing. All he had was a promise. It wasn't a promise that he was ever given into his hand. And then the next thing that happened, we're told, is there was a famine in the land. Now, the one thing that we learn from Genesis is that blessing of God means food. When he blessed the world, he filled it with things to eat. And here is God saying, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and I'm going to bless all the nations through you by giving you a land. You turn up in the land, you find there's a bunch of Canaanites there, so you're not getting the land right now. And the next thing you find is there's no food. You can just imagine, Abraham, where is the blessing you promised me, Lord? All there is, is no food. I've got nothing. But you see, promise isn't about having. It's about hoping and knowing and believing. And that maybe is the first lesson that actually when we start to follow the Lord, we very often find ourselves in horrible places. We find ourselves in famine territory. We find ourselves in frustration. We find ourselves in places we think, this isn't what I signed up for. I thought this was all going to happen. Like coming to a, a new church and thinking we were going to do a whole lot of things. And what do we end up with? A plague. And we've all felt that frustration, haven't we? What about the promises? What about the hope? What about the calling to do new things and, and reach our community? And all we've got is this. But you see, Abraham was not told that it would all happen right like that. And in fact, we'll find as we read through this story that at times Abraham says, well, it doesn't seem to be happening. I better make it happen. Uh, Sarah's not getting pregnant, so I'll grab the slave girl and I'll try to find the family another way. You can read the whole story yourself later. And that's when things really start going wrong because he stopped trusting. But you see, faith always works this way. You know, when you've got children and you love them, you want to give them good things, don't you? Yeah? I hope so. <laughs> when you've got a, 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 a significant other, you want to show your love by giving them things. And that means that they know that you love them. 
But what if you didn't give them things? What if you couldn't give them things? Would they still love you? You know, there's there's an expression, isn't there, about cupboard love. People loving you because you give them stuff. And sometimes our love for God can be in that sort of way. God, give me the goods and I will keep loving you. God, bless my life and I will keep going to church. And it's one of the reasons actually why when things get hard in life, really hard, sometimes we lose faith. And it's because somehow in the back of our minds is this idea that um, God is supposed to show his love for me by making things good. And things are not good, so God can't love me. Or maybe there isn't a God. Or maybe I've been let down. Or maybe all the things that I trusted in aren't true. We haven't heard what God is saying. I want you to love me. Trust me. Not trust the stuff. I can make new stuff. I can make a new heaven and a new earth. But what I want is a relationship with you that is strong enough. That is strong enough that you can go through anything with that. Even death. And that is what faith means. So Abraham decides to go to Egypt. Egypt's a place that has lots of grain. That's proverbially Egypt because the Nile floods is a place with lots of food. And we find this story quite often in the Bible about people going down to Egypt in times of famine. We'll find it with Joseph as well. And he's going to Egypt, and he, he, as he, he thinks about that, he realizes that this is quite dangerous. I could end up dead here because I've got this beautiful, stunning wife. And when I get there, somebody might decide, get rid of him and we'll have her. And so he has this plan. Tell everyone you're my sister, Sarah, which is a great idea until she ends up in Pharaoh's harem. Now think about this for a minute. Here's Abraham sitting alone in his tent. He's in the wrong land, not only with a wife who hasn't had any children, but with a wife who's with somebody else and hasn't had any children. The promise that God has given him at that point looks like a complete and utter shambles. You think it's bad to start what you're starting and suddenly along comes Omicron or whatever the hang we want to call it. Think about Abraham at that point. Now, we know how this story ends. We know that God will be faithful to his blessing from Abraham. We know the blessing that will come. We know the whole of the Bible to the end of Revelation. But Abraham doesn't know any of that. Will he hold on to the promise that God has given him as he sits in his tent? Now, I was reading some of the commentaries on this, and they they were speculating about why did Abraham tell Sarah to say she was his sister? And actually, the Bible doesn't say exactly why he did it. The one theory is that actually um, wives were quite low statuses. So if a man said to the community, this wife I adopt as my sister, that he was giving her a special status, and he was hoping that because she had that special status that she would be treated better than if she was just another woman when people had loads of wives. That's one theory. Seems to be trying to get Abraham off the hook a bit, doesn't it? Uh, and another theory is that um, Pharaoh, if he thought he was his sister, would say Abraham's someone to negotiate with rather than someone to kill and get out of the way 
with this beautiful woman. I don't know. There's a whole load of these theories. The interesting thing is the Bible doesn't tell us what it's about. And it doesn't even tell us that Abraham was doing a bad thing or a good thing because the Bible is not telling us, here is Abraham, here's what he did, don't do what Abraham did or do do what Abraham did or here's your role model that you can try hard and you can be like Abraham. It's not saying that at all. What does it say? Abraham is there and all these hopeless things are happening, but God intervenes. And God puts a curse, a hardship on Pharaoh and he does all of that in order that Abraham would be released and be able to go back and the promise would continue. This is all a story about how God works through these horrible circumstances until his plan is played out. This isn't where Abraham was supposed to be. What was Abraham supposed to be? Blessed and a blessing to the nations. What is he in in Egypt? He's suffering a curse and there's actually a curse falling on Egypt. It's actually the opposite of what will happen when Joseph goes to Egypt, because Joseph will go to Egypt and Egypt will blossom as he brings food and grain and blessing at that point. Here's the strange thing. If you go and read the whole of the Abraham story, when you get to chapter 20, you will find that Abraham meets a guy called Abimelech, um, who's also a very powerful guy, and Abraham's a bit afraid that he'll want to take Sarah, so he says to Sarah, tell him you're my sister. And you're going, what? You're doing that again? That stupid thing you did before? I love that, actually, because how many times do we say to ourselves, what, you're doing that again? That stupid thing that you did before? Have you done that in your life? And this is the great thing about when we say Abraham's the father of faith. It's not that, oh, Abraham, he's a really big faithful man, so try to be a really big faithful man like him, and one or two of you that are godly might get a little bit like Abraham. That's not what it's about at all. The Bible is completely telling us, and it does this with all of its heroes. This guy was sinful. He was broken. He made mistakes. He ended up in famine places. He ended up in what enough do you do in places. And you know, that's an amazing story because... It reminds, us, it reminds us that God has grace with us. You know, we, we live in a society just now <laughs> which people sometimes say is, is liberal. It's actually the most cruel, judgmental society we've ever lived in. If you believe the wrong things, if you say the wrong things, if you do the wrong things, your Twitter account will find you out. You'll be cancelled. If you've committed a crime, it will live in your record forever. And we live in a society which can be incredibly judgmental. Now, some of those judgments we happen to agree with because they seem to be right about people that have committed great injustices and others we don't agree with. But here's the problem. In some ways, Christian societies in the past have been like that, haven't they? Right and wrong and, and, and all the rest of it. But always through... Christ is the story of forgiveness. And the one thing our society does now is it doesn't forgive. A celebrity is caught out because something they wrote in an article 20 years before, and suddenly their gigs are getting cancelled. There's no sense of saying to people, well, you've made a mistake, but we'll forgive you. There's no grace in any of this. You know, I'm always amazed by the story of John Newton. 
You know who I mean, John Newton, who wrote an amazing grace. And maybe you know a little bit about the story of John Newton, but John Newton was a rogue. He'd rebelled against his father's discipline. He'd become a bit of a drunk, a bit of a useless guy, ended up running away from his parents, went to sea, got to work on a slave ship. He was in the slaving business. And as he was on a slave ship, he came into a great storm. And as he was in that storm, he said, Lord, save me. And God heard his prayer. And John Newton turned away from that life. And John Newton became a preacher. John Newton went round the whole of England or beyond that, telling this great story of what God could do with broken people. His amazing grace. He wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace. But here's something you might not have known. It was after John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. After that he came to the conviction that slavery was wrong. Now think about that for a moment. When that guy wrote Amazing Grace, he didn't have a big conviction that his involvement with slavery was wrong. Now today we would say, we better not sing Amazing Grace. Let's tear down the statues of John Newton. Let's cancel him. Because we can't have anything to do with that. But here is the story of God's amazing grace. That even someone who has done the most hideous things. And been involved in the evil of slavery. There is still hope for them. And God even after he's called them is still working in their life. They're still making mistakes. They're still getting it wrong. They still don't understand God's heart that hates slavery and oppression. But God isn't done with them. God keeps working with them. And John Newton actually, in his later part of life, repent deeply of his involvement in that slave trade and does everything he can to support a young chap called William Wilberforce, who will go on to make the difference in the abolition of the slave trade in the British Empire. I tell you that story because at the heart of the gospel needs to be this idea that God is working with broken, rubbish people, and he doesn't suddenly, as they're called to Christianity, make them something like that but he keeps working with us despite the fact we keep going, oh, I've done it again. We don't bring a lot to this, folks. We really don't. We start off as broken sinners that have done all sorts of things that are wrong. We don't have many resources. We feel like Abraham with no kids. God's doing this amazing call on us, and then we blow it time and time again. That's what we bring to it. But the amazing joy of the gospel is the it's God that holds us up. It's God that picks us up. It's not just that God gives us wonderful things and everything's fine. It's that God gives us this promise that he is creating a new world and he's going to do it with the very unpromising material that I am and you are. He's going to give his own perfect son, the only one who never got it wrong, that we might know redemption and we might know forgiveness. And by the way, that's why when we pray that prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. At the heart of the gospel, we need to be a forgiving people. Never, ever write anybody off. Doesn't matter what they've done. Doesn't matter how appalled you are by it. Never, ever write anyone off. There is always forgiveness in Christ. 